everyone. Alex from Collective Creamery here, fresh off of five days in Pittsburgh for the American Cheese Society Conference 2018. Uh, our whole crew was there, uh, Steph, Sue, and I, um, some of our Philly cheese friends, Madame Fromage, uh, who we all love, Mike Agino, painter of cheese, uh, and several other of our Pennsylvania cheesemaker friends and other fr- cheese friends from further afield. We had an amazing time tasting, pairing, learning, talking, discussing everything cheese over this epic long cheese camp weekend and we're all just like still still glowing from this really amazing experience in our home state the conference messed up our schedule of episodes just a little bit so to make up for that uh, no episode on friday we have a little bonus mini-sode today that's a bit of a departure from our usual episodes and mini-sodes friday morning's keynote speaker at the conference was the amazing simran sati she's the author of bread wine chocolate the slow loss of foods we love she's also the host of the slow melt a podcast about chocolate that i'm really loving right now. And she spoke on Friday morning about biodiversity, cheese, dairy, uh, identity, talked a lot about a new project that she is working on that I can't wait to read regarding cheese and identity. So of course, I had to run out and grab her book from the conference bookstore, get it signed and ask if she would chat with me on record for the podcast. So we got a chance to sit down in our hotel room. We talked about cheese, identity, chocolate, food justice, the work that she's doing. And it was really exciting to be able to discuss these topics with her. So without further ado, here is my chat with Simran Sethi. are here at the American Cheese Society Conference in Pittsburgh. It's been a really amazing weekend. And one of our favorite parts uh, was getting to hear Simran Sati speak the Friday morning keynote with her putting the lens of biodiversity that she's put on some of the world's most delicious foods through cheese with her new project. So Simran, thank you so much for being uh, able to speak with me today. Thanks for having me here in lovely Pittsburgh. So I want to start... First thing, I also grew up in North Carolina, uh, in Raleigh. Um, So when I started reading your book, as soon as I bought it yesterday, uh, and I saw that you were from Winston-Salem, that was awesome. And you mentioned one of your earliest cheese experiences was with Paneer, eating, cooking at home. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your cheese life has been like? My cheese life. Wow, that's the first time I've been asked that question, and it's a great one. So yes, I I didn't even realize, I never thought of Paneer as a fresh cheese. I... You know, whenever it was described in American, you know, lexicon, it was always like a tofu-like substance, right? So um, so that was a real revelation for me. But when I, you know, growing up, when I thought of cheese, it was sort of this almost indulgence food for us in the sense of my mom cooked every night and we would have kind of a mix of predominantly Indian food, but sometimes Southern staples and sometimes just general American food. But macaroni and cheese, you know, out of a box was to my sister and me, you know, the holy grail because we wouldn't (laughs) usually get that stuff, you know. So um, as much as I did not like or appreciate Kraft singles, I always really loved Kraft macaroni and cheese. So that um, actually has remained one of my comfort foods, not the Kraft version, but the Annie's organic mac and cheese out of the box. There you go. Exactly. You know, if I, I chop up a tomato, I grab a bunch of spinach, I 
mix it all together and I feel like it's a very healthy meal and a very comforting one. So I I think my cheese life started kind of there, you know, with an understanding or a, a belief that cheese was something that brought great deliciousness and comfort. I didn't understand the nuances. I didn't know terroir. I didn't know where cheese came from. I didn't have any sense of it, but I knew that it was something that brought me joy. And I want to talk about um, marketing for a second. I think from inside the the really small scale uh, cheesemaker industry, which is where you know I'm really familiar with Sue and Steph. Obviously, that's what they're doing: small, independent, scrappy bootstrapping. It kind of feels like the craft beer boom, the third wave coffee, artisan chocolate boom. Now, craft cider is like really on the upswing and gaining steam. Obviously, there's been a lot. There was a big resurgence in the artisan cheesemaking in the States in the 70s. That's somewhat continued. The dairy crisis has continued to worsen. That's not always linked to artisan cheese in this country. But it feels like maybe we're we're not experiencing that same like ballooning of interest in the general public and that same elevation of of consumer standards uh, across the board that those other industries have experienced. And I wonder how you see the cheese world now that you're kind of really digging into this. Where is it going to be? Is it going to have one of those big uh, punctuated equilibrium moments where a lot more folks are really starting to get into artisan cheese and craft and what makes it really special? So I hear two questions in there. So I'm gonna t- I might kind of pull it apart. I'll say, first of all, I, I spent five years on six continents looking at bread, wine, coffee, chocolate, and beer and kind of the more specialized versions of all of those things. And I use the word specialized as a catch-all, right? We could say craft, we could say artisan, we could say small scale, uh, so on and so forth. But because these terms are so ill-defined outside of specialty coffee and craft beer, which have, you know, these kind of clearer designations, it's it's been hard for me to kind of capture everything in a single term. I see, I, and I think if I, I have spoken to, so I think I could say with, with certainty, speaking to people within those various uh, smaller industries that I have just referenced would all tell you that it happens slowly Mm -hmm. and that all of a sudden there seemed to be a tipping point, but it wasn't even necessarily uh, apparent to those who are working into that industry, right? So now we could talk about, for example, craft chocolate. Craft Mm -hmm. chocolate has, and these are very loose numbers. I I have a podcast focused on chocolate and I've asked this question, how do we even define craft chocolate? What is specialty? What is fine? What is flavor, et cetera, et cetera. And we are running around in circles because there's no authority that has said it is X versus Y. So when we try to capture the numbers, they're fuzzy, but we can say maybe about 1% of the market. And I think when we look at kind of this uh, artisan cheese, we're seeing something that is bigger. And, And what gives me a lot of hope is that I don't just see it in a single kind of place, right? I I mentioned in my talk during the Q&A, someone asked, you know, sort of like, what do you see happening here? And I was really heartened when I was at the ACS conference back in Iowa a couple of years ago that Murray's Cheese was introducing, you know, had this education program in Kroger, right? Mm-hmm. So Kroger, this very general grocery store chain, I we grew up in the South, you know, one that is familiar to us and that, that people were getting exposure to cheese across the board. Now, you know, they might not be spending like huge amounts of money, but they're slowly, slowly understanding the difference between a commodity cheese and these kind of more specialized varieties in a way that I think is distinct from something like chocolate, where people have been so conditioned towards just sweetness, right? All they want is the sugar rush. All they want is this kind of generic cocoa flavor that it's a lot harder to get someone to spend 10 times as much money on a chocolate bar that has these really beautiful expressions of terroir and, and you know, these like wide diversity of flavors because 
all they want is the sugar, mm-hmm. right? And I think even in, and please push back if you disagree, but even in commodity cheese, there's just a little, there's there's a there's a little bit of a broader spectrum there. And, and I'm not going to go so far as to say like it's a tremendous amount of flavor in a craft single, but but that there is some <laughs> nuance and I think some expectation of, of a maybe just a slightly broader range of flavor. So I see something akin to maybe craft beer that could happen with kind of specialty cheese, you know, artisan cheese, which is slowly we're going to see, you know, this interest deepen. I mean, not slowly, it's actually happening, I think, quite quickly now. Um, but that then there will be this kind of dramatic tipping point that maybe we saw even shifting from, you know, that focus on commodity in the 70s and, and early 80s to specialty, you know, that that it happens again, but this time it happens more on the consumer side than the pr- production side. It's interesting because when we think about those sectors, we're like, oh, well, it's booze. People love booze. It's caffeine. People need caffeine. Mm-hmm. It's sugar. People yep. love sugar. Of course, yep. they also love fat and umami flavors. There so we you go. Get in cheese. Exactly. But pulling people away from just wanting the sugar, I guess, is the challenge of craft chocolate. Whereas yes. with cheese, it's really about getting folks to appreciate, like you said, the broader range of flavors. Mm-hmm. There is still a lot of consumers go for those long aged, really concentrated toffee, caramel, super yeah. savory and sharp flavors. Yeah. Cheesemakers right. want them. But to look at what you just said. Spectrum. Sweet, savory, sharp. You already <laughs> gave me more than chocolate, which is sugar, sugar, sugar. <laughs> true. It's true. We're, yeah, we're just like we're pushing and and really we just really we love our craft beer friends and we're just like guys come on like pull us pull us up um and i think it's a similar thing we're like the the ipa boom yeah like that's what drew a lot of people right, in right like, and getting hoppy. really strong strong um flavors in like one specific direction of that spectrum yeah yeah another marketing question that came up in um an open networking session on thursday where we were all talking about how we communicate to eaters about our products and how we message, whether it's at the cheese counter, um, whether it's folks training cheesemongers, whether it's at a farmer's market. One person brought up a question that I really wish we could have had a lot of time to unpack. Mm-hmm. It, it was, this, this person mentioned, uh, you know, people think cheese makes them fat. Mm-hmm. And I want to know how chocolate, how the chocolate world and the craft chocolate world approaches that question yeah. when you have, you know, delicious fat and sugar yeah, uh, totally. in a chocolate bar. Yeah. Same, same, right? Same challenge, except what I think is crazy is that, I mean, first of all, low fat, everything I think is total bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And, and I think what what is missing is that um, not enough people talk about kind of the role of fat as a carrier for flavor, right? So all those volatile aromas that we talk about, both cheese and chocolate are incredibly complex foods, right? The fat is stable at room temperature. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. And when you put these substances in your mouth, everything starts to open up. I think if we're going to emphasize flavor as a reason people choose cheese, right? If you're going to indulge, then you may as well make it the best version of this experience as you that you can. If you are choosing a low-fat version, you are compromising your own experience, right? So it's almost pointless. It's like, well, then just go chew cardboard. Like, don't even (laughs) bother with any cheese. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I think that is a critical point to emphasize. This whole movement, there's these weird kind of movements to me in chocolate around talking about chocolate as a health food or low-fat chocolate, chocolate low-sugar chocolate. I'm a big believer of dark because when you look at chocolate in the United States, you only need about 10% cocoa content to call it a chocolate. So the darker it is, the more more 
cocoa you're actually getting, right? right? And I actually, that's what I want you to experience. Um, But I think what we need to do in both of these foodstuffs, and I I really do feel like there's greater synergy between cheese and chocolate than any of the other ones, because they're both complex because they go through many processes to become the end product. The only difference is, and this is where we see, you know, better comparisons between like cheese and wine, is um, they are, tend to be made closer together, right? So there's a decoupling when you exactly. look at chocolate or coffee. They're grown in one place. They become the end product in another place. And I think that, that there's something there to tease out. But in any case, I would emphasize, instead of going this whole low-fat route, I would really emphasize we want to we're, – we're, this, this is an indulgence. This is something that is delicious. It is also provides all these great proteins, so on and so forth. But we're really doing this for flavor. And if we're going to do it for flavor, then, then the role of fat is critical in that. And so that's – where I tend to go when I'm talking to people. I don't have any patience or interest in someone who wants to talk to me about the health merits and, you know, unroasted chocolate, you know, v- vegan, raw, these things, not not vegan, <laughs> but raw. Um, these things, they compromise the, the flavor. You would never uh, consume an unroasted coffee. So why right. would you do that with your chocolate? And so I really try to make these comparisons that people would understand and go from there, but never, never apologizing for the fat. <laughs> we, the words nutrient dense appeal to a certain segment of of cheese consumers. That's what a lot of the sort of closer to the farm or folks in more rural areas who are maybe doing more like, uh, you know, gardening, homesteady, wanting mm-hmm. to do that kind of crunchy thing. Yep. Really emphasize when I'm talking to consumers at a farmer's market, I always say like, this is the best, healthiest cheese you can be eating. Mm-hmm. If you're going to eat it, mm-hmm. like choose ours that's 100% grass fed, that's maple certified organic milk, that's raw milk, yeah. you know, et cetera. Do you ever start by asking them, what are you looking for in your cheese? I think my con- my per- my personal context for working with eaters and cheese is yeah. always in regional food systems. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, tip- if I'm behind, when I was behind a cheese counter, I would have Pennsylvania and New Jersey cheeses. So we had a pretty, it was like a a very deep knowledge of that community and those products and products made along a spectrum of fresh to age and a lot of different flavor types and cheese Mm -hmm. types. But it's not like, you know, we we have, you know, our big database of, of cheeses and we're going to find the perfect mm-hmm. date for you, you know? Or just like if they're like, I really want something delicious to share with my girlfriend tonight versus absolutely. like I'm absolutely like I'm training for a marathon or, you know, like, sure. the, yeah. So you could kind of, I don't know, message in that direction. I right. When, yeah. when folks, when folks, they always ask me my favorite. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> they're all good. <laughs> I love all of my children equally. Um, <laughs> liar, but, but liar. But I usually ask, I'm like, what do you want to do? Do you just like want something around? Do you want to have it last you a couple of weeks? Or are you about to go out of town, but you still want to get some because you're here at the farmer's market today? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to like put it on your bagel in the morning? Do you want to bring it to a party with wine or beer or something like that? So we, we definitely tease and drill down into the best one. And the best thing about having the face-to-face interaction is that they can just taste it. Right. All You're really giving them, you want to give them permission to buy stuff from you. Exactly. And to <laughs> yeah. n- to ask to, to not feel intimidated because oh, yeah. I am so intimidated by cheese counters. I can't even, you know, I I myself have to always kind of remember, okay, this is what a washed rind is. Okay, this is blue rind. This is, oh, the terroir of this, and da, 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 the flavor profile of that. And oh, is this the region? Is this the milk? Like, what mm. is the, you know, and it's it's absolutely incredible 
and overwhelming at the same time. It's an argument for sticking to your local cheeses that gives There's gives you a little bit of a, uh, a limitation that can be useful for for first getting into to cheese. Yeah. Um, I want to go to your book, Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of the Foods We Love. I just picked it up yesterday at the, the ACS bookstore and immediately started reading it. But I really liked one section, obviously, um, in specialty food. And this is like, this is one way that I don't really fit in here, which is totally fine. Uh, It takes all kinds. But I think a lot about food justice. Specialty food is very white. It's very upper class, upper middle class. It's it can be exclusive in, in a lot of ways. And and cheese is no different. And this book is bread, wine, chocolate. It's these Foods that are in some ways exotic or, or you know, the, at the highest craft, they're sometimes expensive or hard to access. But in your intro, you get to this one section. This is talking about your, your journey through, through chocolate and researching these foods. Until I embarked on this journey, I didn't understand the greater nourishment and a deeper savoring of every aspect of my life were not only available, but what I deserved. What we all deserve and can have. Not just crumbs of life, but cake. And I think in cheese, this isn't really talked about. An example from my experience is the farmer's market I work at is has a very, very diverse clientele. It's very bustling. It's year-round. And I'm always excited when somebody can't indulge in a cheese that maybe they couldn't before because they're able to get double bucks back to buy produce uh, if they're using a snap card, for example. Um, and I would love to hear your thoughts on food access and food justice in the specialty food world. There's, it's a global issue. It's a local issue. Um, and how that informs your approach to looking at these foods. Right. So I actually come from that orientation as well. I want to I wanna say that first and foremost. And I never want to discount the very real challenges people are facing around food insecurity and hunger in the United States and, and everywhere. I will say I feel frustrated that good food, I'm putting good in quotes, um, specialty, whatever you want to call it, the opposite of commodity has Mm -hmm. become something that is perceived as belonging to the elite. In the United States, you're right. The price point for these things is high. But I also feel very strongly that I don't want to apologize for that price because I believe in paying a real price for food. And I think what we have moved toward is this idea that, you know, with microwaves, things should be ready in five minutes. You know, with a Happy Meal, things should cost, I don't even know, what, $3.99, whatever the hell it is. You know, that, that these have become the expectations. And the people who are getting shortchanged by this are the very people who, I mean, like, some of the poorest people, I, I, I said this yesterday in the talk, some of the poorest people in the world are smallholder farmers. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, the irony of this does not escape me, that restaurant workers, that migrant laborers are the people who are struggling to make ends meet and put food on the table. And we were doing something very wrong. We, as a global society, local society, when the people who create our food can't afford to eat. And so I want to be fighting for People paying more for food, A, and people recognizing people need to be paid enough to feed themselves well. Because every time we talk about cheapening food, I think what we're talking about is, A, the margins being cut and the very poorest people with the least amount of political clout making even less money. It's not the CEO of McDonald's. He's fine. The CEO of Smithfield's. It's the people working in the slaughterhouse for nothing, right? Or that the quality of the food plummets. So then we are putting ourselves in this vicious cycle 
of health problems in a country where, myself included, I don't even have health insurance anymore, right? So so I am not going to be the person pushing for food to be cheaper. I am going to be the person pushing for wages to be higher. And I'm also going to say there is still within this, this schism. I don't want people paying 200 bucks for a fancy piece of chocolate. Now, if you're paying 10 bucks for it, you're getting closer to the real price. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, what we need to be thinking about there even is the farmer, right? That doesn't, I, I'm not interested in just the maker getting the lion's share right. of that money, right? So so I think that there's always work to do. But when people first pick up my book, sometimes they're like, oh, you're suggesting everybody eat fancy food. I said, no, I'm <laughs> suggesting you choose a craft beer over a Bud Light, which I think you might already be doing. I'm suggesting a pivot in the grocery store toward foods that aren't these five core foods we all seem to be eating globally, wheat, rice, corn, soybean, palm oil, turn toward the olive oil. I'm saying pay attention. And if you read a little bit further, you'll hear me talk about going to McDonald's in India and loving my French fries. And what I am saying fundamentally is pay attention. Be grateful for whatever you have. And if you are lucky enough to eat a beautiful piece of cheese or excellent piece of chocolate, like understand that supply chain, like know what your money is supporting. And to me, there's no joy in cheap anything when I know that it's built on the backs of people suffering. And so that's fundamentally what I'm trying to get toward. Now, what I will pick up in that giant net is some fancy food people who are like, I'm a foodie. And oh, I love when you talk about this fancy bread. But that was never my intention. So that and that's something I really have to struggle with in my work is to kind of clarify that at every moment that at the core of this for me is justice. But it is justice that goes all the way back to the farm and all the way back to the farmer. And I think emphasizing that link between the two ends of the supply chain is really what can communicate to folks who maybe for for which this is more of an indulgence uh, in terms of their budget. Yeah. That this is a good thing, that this is something worth worth saving uh, and that communicates to people who do have the extra money that they should be pushing as much of their money that way as possible. Absolutely. And before we wrap up, um, I want to talk about your next project. Uh, which you shared a little bit about looking at cheese and identity. Can you tell us about this? Absolutely. So I'm Indian and I'm from uh, originally from I was born in Germany, but my people are Punjabi from uh, northern India. It's the ag state. Um, And we have a lot of cattle also in the state. And for a number of reasons, there was this huge migration in the 1980s um, of people of the Sikh faith. The proper pronunciation is actually Sikh. S-I-K-H. It comes from the word sikna, which means to learn. In any case, they're the folks that you see in turbans um, who are part of this faith. And a lot of them moved out of the country and or or not a lot, some, you know, and, and started to make their lives elsewhere. One of the places that they settled was Italy. In Italy, what we now see, like, I guess, my gosh, almost 40 years later, is that the, the primary dairy farmers behind some of Italy's most iconic cheeses, including Parmigiano Reggiano, are these Indian dairy farmers. And to me, and it's, it's an extraordinary story because I grew up in the United States and I've always been considered an other, right? Like, where are you really from? You're not black. You're not white. You know, literally back in the census, we used to check the other box. It was crazy. And now I kind of see what's happening in Italy. I've, I've um, spent quite a bit of time there. Understanding that identity is changing because the people who are creating this iconic Italian cheese are Indian. And when it comes to that particular cheese I'm talking about, Parmigiano Reggiano, the the timing of the milkings is very important, right? It's not simply the region. It's not the 
processing, the end processing. It is very specific also to the milking. So those hands matter. And what I really want to explore is like what makes a food Italian or American. I've written about this for NPR, actually, about like our quintessential American is apple pie kind of refrain, right? None of those foods are American. We That is as Indonesian, Chinese, and Middle Eastern as apple pie, right? And I believe with all the stuff going on politically about pulling us apart, that food can be a way to return to each other and can be a way to celebrate each other. Because I'll tell you, without Without places like Syria, we wouldn't have bread and pasta. Without Ethiopia, there's no coffee. Not yesterday, not today, not tomorrow. They are the repository. And like, I want people to start to see people differently. And if I can turn to you and say, oh, wow. (laughs) Hey, thanks to all your people for that cup of coffee. Or wow, chocolate comes from your region. God bless you. You know, like that, (laughs) that there's a way to sort of maybe see people differently. And celebrate people differently. And I feel like in my work, which focuses on kind of food and culture, that it's almost my responsibility to do this. And I'm, I'm super excited about exploring identity through Parmigiano-Reggiano and how it has evolved. You know, Italy is also going through its own political crisis and clamping down, and it's a very painful time. But to say, he, in this one small place, there seems to be a shift And if we can start to understand identity in a different way or expand what it means to be an Italian, maybe in a way that was never conferred to me, right? I was never seen as as an American. Um, That maybe that that's a way for some people to reclaim a part of themselves or to see themselves in a different light. And I'll, I'll just wrap by saying this. I spoke at a conference last year. It's called Cheese. It happens. Slow Food sponsors it every alternate year in, in Bra in, in Italy. And I talked about these farmers and two teenage girls, Indian girls, came up to me afterwards and they said, thank you. I said, no one has ever talked about our dad like this before. And it like, I mean, my heart burst open, right? Like that's everything. So if if I can do in any small way, make people see these farmers as not just human, but integral to this thing that they call their own, then I will have just done something I think that would mean a lot to me. <laughs> I can't wait to read this. Thank you. Sounds so fascinating and so applicable to what's going on here, too. Yeah. And I hope people will map it on because we know all the the hands that are behind every dairy farm probably in the world now is, you know, it is people from North Africa. It is people from Central America. And we're not giving them enough attention and credit. And so that's that's the hope, you know, that that maybe in some small way I can. Thank you so much, Simran Seti. The book is Bread, Wine, and Chocolate, The Slow Loss of the Foods We Love. And you can listen to her amazing chocolate podcast, The Slow Melt. Thank you. Collective Creamery is Stephanie Angstadt, Sue Miller, and Alex Jones. Jordan Heil produced the podcast, and Mike Lorenz wrote our music. You can hear him on Thursday nights at the Tired Hands Brew Cafe in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can learn more and subscribe to our cheese subscription at collectivecreamery.com.